All right, good morning, good morning. Good to see you guys. My name is Steve. I'm lead pastor. Thanks for joining us this morning. Uh, we are continuing our sermon series called Holier Than Thou. And this morning we're going to be going over to John 13. So go ahead and grab your Bibles. And uh, let's flip over to John 13. If you don't have a Bible, grab one in the chairs around you. And our Bibles, we're going over to page 900. Page 900. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, please feel free to take that one with you. We'd love for it to be our gift to you. Uh, while you're turning over there, um, I big we're going to pray because uh, <laughs> this is a big deal. Flatiron Church is having its first public gathering this morning, uh, and some of you are like Flatiron Church, um, yeah. So we sent out Brian and Melinda Pacheco. Uh, I don't know a while back with around 25 trailhead people. They moved all the way to Phoenix, Arizona, and uh, they are um, planting a, a church um, in the shadow of Flatiron Mountain, apparently, and uh, so Flatiron Church is having its first public gathering this morning. Some of you remember, uh, some of you were with us when we started Trailhead, um, the setup, the teardown, uh, the, the excitement, the insecurity, um, uh, I was talking with uh, Jamie Guile, a friend of mine from Kansas City who actually lived here and helped us launch Trailhead Church, and he was, he was reminiscing. He was like, man, I remember it was like week three. I showed up. We were meeting on Sunday nights, and he's like, there might have been, might have been a dozen people in the room, and I went home, and this is Jamie telling me. He goes home and talks to his wife, Sarah, and he's like, I'm, I'm not sure we're going to even be around next week. Like, like, this thing may just shrivel up and die. Um, it, it's like that. It, it is exciting and scary and people invest their lives into it with absolutely no guarantee that God's going to show up and do wonderful things and he always does in one way or another in one way or another and so why don't we just pause and pray for Brian and Melinda for the entire team uh, they're in a, an elementary school so they're they're right now doing probably the pre-checks and and all of the craziness and all that stuff so why don't we just take a minute and let's pray uh, for our friends and that team in, in Phoenix. Lord, we, we thank you for the incredible privilege we have uh, to invest in something eternal, to take something um, that is um, as temporary as money, to take something that is as meaningful as friendships and relationship, um, and Lord, to be generous, to send, to give in order to bless. And, and Lord, we just are filled with gratitude this morning. Uh, that this uh, team is on the ground, that they want to be a blessing to that community, that they are actively inviting people who are far from you to draw near, that they are giving opportunity and encouragement to those who believe in you to get on mission with you, to, to join um, the generous call of, of the gospel of love and, and to serve others. Lord, bless them this morning. Fill them with joy. May there be a rich and abundant harvest. Uh, may they see people actually become believers in that space this morning. May they, may they see people reignited in their faith in a way that makes them want to join them uh, to reach this community. Lord, bless them. Um, fill them with your spirit and do what only you can do because at the end of the day, uh, we can do nothing apart from you. And so we commit them to you and we are grateful for the small part we've been able to play uh, in that. We pray for this blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, one more announcement. Uh, we are going to be having baptisms between services, so I'm going to ask you to stick around after service uh, for baptisms, um, and I'm going to throw the invitation out. If you are a follower of Jesus but you haven't been dunked, today can be your day, okay? All you got to do is go to Connection Point, the, uh, the spot out in the lobby. Uh, let us know that you're a, a believer in Jesus who has not followed Jesus in baptism, and um, uh, we'll talk to you a little bit. We'll help make sure that, that you understand what's happening, that we're all on the same page. And, and um, we may say, hey, why don't, why don't we have further conversations? But we may say, let's do it. We'll give you a T-shirt, and uh, we're going to get you wet, okay? So stick around after service for that. All right, holier than thou, we are in week three of this sermon series, uh, and we've covered a lot of territory in 
the last two weeks. Um, so I want to hit some of the key principles just that lay the groundwork. First of all, in week one, we talked about how holiness is about attachment, not achievement. Right? That, it, that, that holiness is something that comes from relationship with God, not performance for God. Holiness is something that God gives us um, as He sets us apart for Himself. The root of the word holiness means to be set apart, both in the Old Testament and the Hebrew and in the New Testament and the Greek. It means to be set apart. And, and so when Jesus um, looked at the woman from the city who was a sinner and said to her, your sins are forgiven, he set her apart. He declared her holy. He made her sacred. Holiness is a gift from God that is based in our relationship with God. When we respond to God's love, the invitation of his grace, with trust, with faith, with a responding love, we are given the gift of holiness. Now here's the challenge as believers in Christ and typically uh, God's people have struggled with this for um, really from, from all time, right? This was Simon the Pharisee's struggle in, in week one. We want to focus on what we're set apart from, not on what we're set apart to, right? So we, we approach holiness like this big game of chutes and ladders, right? That, that if we do the right things, we climb the hill of moral self-improvement. If we do the wrong things, we slide down toward, toward badness. And so every single day, the challenge before us is to do more good things and avoid more bad things. And if I can just do that, if I can just white-knuckle my way through this, if I can just, if I can just climb this hill, I will become more holy. The problem with that perspective, the problem with focusing on what we're set apart from, sin, and so therefore I become more holy if I can just somehow become less sinful, it always results, always results in moral self-improvement projects. And those moral self-improvement projects hinder the work of grace. They actually hinder our growth in holiness because we are trying to do what can only be given to us in grace. God wants us not to focus so much on what we're set apart from as much as on what we're set apart to. The gift of holiness is that we're set apart by God to God. We are set apart by God to, to His love, right? Um, in fact, the, the most important or the clearest manifestation of our holiness is called the fruit of the Spirit, right? We saw this last week that the way we grow in holiness is not by focusing on becoming more fruitful, but by abiding in the vine. We focus on our intimate relationship with God, responding to His love, humbly dependent on His presence, and then we grow in fruit. We don't grow in fruit by becoming focused on the, group, uh, the fruit. We, we grow in fruit by becoming focused on the vine, right? We looked at Galatians 5. The way we... we become fruitful is to walk in the Spirit. Same metaphor. It means to walk in a humbly responsive relationship with God in which we are responding to His grace, responding to His love, delighting in His presence, right? And as we, we walk in the Spirit, we bear the fruit of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit, according to Galatians 5, is love. The fruit is singular. The fruit of the Spirit is love. We are grounded in love and we are growing in love. And then all the things that come with love, right? Um, the, the rest of that list, right? Uh, uh, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. All of those things simply grow as the byproduct of abiding in His love, walking in the Spirit. Now, the fruit of the Spirit, all those words, Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. They're all relational words. They make absolutely no sense outside of relationship. Right? What good is kindness if you don't have anybody to be kind to? What good is love if you don't have someone to love? Holiness is fundamentally and essentially relational. There is no holiness outside of relationships. The holiness is not this abstract, isolated, moral measurement to which we are being compared, it is a dynamic relational experience in which we are growing to relate to God and to others in love. We are growing in our ability to obey the great commandment, to love the Lord God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. 
So that's where we are. Those are the big ideas we've covered over the last two weeks. That's a lot of ground. This morning, today, our big idea is this. If we want to grow in holiness, there's only one way. We have to grow in humility. And you're like, ooh, that one sounds safe. Well, we'll see. To grow in holiness isn't about rising up, fixing ourselves, climbing the, the hill of moral self-improvement. It's not about being right, thinking the right things, doing the right things. It's not about fixing ourselves. It's not about fixing others. To grow in holiness requires us not to climb up, but to kneel down, to see others, and to love them, to serve others from a place of humble generosity. This is our big idea. To grow in holiness, we must grow in humility. Let's take a look at John 13, our passage for this morning. We're looking at verses 1 through 17. Uh, Follow along as I read this out loud. Now, before the feast of the Passover... When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not now understand, but afterwards you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I don't wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Well, then, all right, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who it was that was going to betray him. And that's why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garment and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet, for I have given you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, so verse 7. An important verse. Verse 7, Jesus says, what I'm doing now, you you don't understand yet, okay? Um, You'll understand it later, he says to them. You'll understand it later. Right now, you don't get it. All right, so this was the night of the Passover. Um, Remember, this is a a Thursday night, and and on Sunday, they came into the city to the triumphal entry. Uh, Palm Sunday, people came out, Hosanna to the highest, you know, basically singing his praises as Messiah. And and the disciples, man, their hearts are going a million miles an hour. They are excited. They are filled with, with all the buzz of craziness. They've done all the work to prepare for the Passover meal this evening. They got all this stuff going on. This night is chaotic. Uh, There's excitement and a lot of moving pieces. And in the middle of this, Jesus knows they're they're not ready to receive the message he has for them. Not yet. But he's going to teach them with more than words. He's going to teach them with his actions. He's going to teach them with his life. One of the beautiful things about Jesus is that He loves stories, whether they're spoken stories or living stories, uh, because stories communicate truth. And and so he lives a lesson in front of them this evening so that when all the dust settles, after he gets betrayed later in the night, after he gets crucified, after he's raised from the dead uh, on the following Sunday morning, uh, and and after all of the craziness, there's going to come a point where the disciples are looking back and they're thinking about this evening. And the events of this evening and and the things that he did. And when they do, they're going to discover profound truths. And it's clear that's exactly what the Apostle John did, right? We're reading the Gospel of John, and and the Apostle John clearly looked back on this evening, his experience in that space, 
And, and, and so as he tells this story, he's trying to help us enter into the dramatic central tension of the lesson, right? I want you to notice the steady, intentional, emotional buildup of the first three verses. It's pretty important, right? Verse one, now therefore the feast of pa- before the feast of Passover, so before they had dinner, uh, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world of the Father, all right, that's kind of a big deal, right? Jesus, who, who came to be the Messiah, understood this was the night. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end, right? The drama, the intensity, he has loved them faithfully, and tonight he is going to love them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, right? The tension is getting ramped up. The stakes are high. This is a critical moment. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God. Are you, are you catching the intentional buildup of tension and expectation as John is setting the stage? And then in verse 4, he says, Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Messiah, God in the flesh, knowing this is the critical moment, verse 4, rose from supper and laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. This feels a little out of sync, right? With that kind of buildup, man, you're like, go big or go home, right? It is time for the king to be kingly. And what is this huge thing that John is building up to? He took off his cloak and he put on a towel. He took off the garments of a rabbi and he put on the rags of a servant. I've heard countless sermons on this passage. I've given, I don't even know, who knows how many times I've preached out of it. I love John. I love every bit of this gospel, and I've preached out of John 13 before. And, and the common message that I've delivered and I've heard out of this, out of this passage is this. If you want to follow Jesus... You need to be a servant leader. You need to be a leader who takes up a towel. You need to be um, a CEO who's willing to valet. You need to be a pastor who's willing to work in kids' ministry or scrub toilets. You you need to be um, somebody who's not hung up on his title and hung up on his position and instead uh, is willing to just do the lowly deeds, right? Because he took the the, the, the role of a servant, and not just any servant, right? He was watching, washing their feet, and it's often pointed out, and it is true, that, that often it was the lowest servant who did this task, who actually got on the ground, took off the sandals, scrubbed between the toes, you know, scrubbed the, did, did kind of the nasty work, right? And, and that's all true. That is all true. But it misses the point. That's something I've seen as I have sat in this passage. We miss the point if we think this lesson is only about being servant-hearted. Because Jesus is doing more than simply saying, be helpful to others. He is challenging his disciples' entire understanding of valuing people. Jesus lived in a shame-honor culture, and I've mentioned this a thousand times. I'll keep mentioning it because it's a critical distinction between the world of the New Testament and our world. I'm not sure we can properly understand just how radically different a shame-honor culture functions from ours. I've tried to create parallels at times. We're kind of a, a fame culture. Uh, where, where somebody has fame, we, we give them greater value. And, and there's some parallels here, but I think it really falls short in many ways. Um, when I was in East Asia visiting a team that, that we had helped sponsor, um, I had the opportunity to meet with some college students um, from the campus. Uh, it was an incredible experience. Um, they loved to meet with me because I was an older Western man and and a pastor, and as a result, I was seen as a person of position of honor, very much like a rabbi, and and 
it was, it was their honor to, to meet with me. And I spoke English, and, and they loved any opportunity possible to practice English. And, uh, and so I never, I could ask anybody on campus, hey, you want to go grab lunch with me? Anybody would say yes. Like, it was not hard to get a sit-down meeting with people in that environment. And in, in that context, I was able to share with them the gospel. I was able to speak to them about Jesus, about God who became flesh and lived the life they should have lived and died the death they deserved to die and rose again. And, and, and this is what I found. It was incredibly difficult to share the gospel with them because of the cultural differences. Today, Central Asia and East Asia are still shame-honor cultures. They, they have no word for sin. The only word they have is crime. So for them, an offense against society, an offense against the shame, or excuse me, the honor of society is the same thing. The difficulty was trying to translate that concept into our relationship with God. And so one time as I was talking with these students, I'm like, you know, let me just, let me put it this way, right? Because, because we've committed crime against God, right? We've, we were created in the image of God, but we don't live out that image. We, we're, we're not who we were created to be. And, and as a result, we've committed crime against God, but we've insulted Him too. It's more than just committing a crime. It's, it's relational. And, and, and I'm like, imagine, imagine if you just slapped your teacher and, and like how offensive that would be. But imagine if your teacher didn't get offended, but actually continued loving you even though you slapped your teacher, and instead of punishing you, took your punishment for you so that you could be delivered from it. They never heard the rest of that sentence because as soon as I said slap your teacher, they were gone. They couldn't imagine doing something so shameful. You do not dishonor people in positions of honor. You don't dishonor your parents, you don't dishonor your teacher, you don't dishonor, you do not, like for them, even listening to me say that, derailed them. It was so unsettling. The shame on our culture is so deeply ingrained that it shapes the way you interact with with not only people, but really the entire culture of people around you. Listen, this lesson isn't just about being a servant leader. It's way deeper and more challenging than that. Jesus' lesson here is that his disciples need to set aside their understanding of what makes one person valuable and another person not valuable. They need to set aside their understanding of what makes one person worth more than someone else, what makes one person more honorable than someone else. You need to question what makes a person acceptable or unacceptable. You need to set aside your understanding of what makes someone your ally and what makes someone your enemy. In other words, he's telling them that it is time for them to rethink how they define holiness. What sets someone apart as sacred to God and therefore worthy of love? See, self-righteous holiness, the kind of holiness that is the result of our moral self-improvement projects, the holiness that we perceive somehow is, is our achievement to try to impress God and, and fix ourselves. That kind of holiness is always comparative. We will compare ourselves to ourselves, but we will also compare ourselves to others. Which means you're always going to find someone to look down on. And you will always find someone to look up to. You'll perceive your place on this hillside and you will always have somebody you look down on either with pity or, or to, to despise them. To feel sorry for them as someone to be fixed or to despise them as someone who hasn't made all the right choices like you have. True holiness is not comparative. 
There is no comparison in true holiness. When God sets us apart, you can't compare that. You're either set apart or you're not. It's not comparative. And the impulse is not to compare and to fix. It is to love. We are set apart by the generous love of God and genuine holiness awakens within us an impulse of generous love, not comparison. That means holiness isn't looking to judge. It's looking to be generous. See, Jesus put on the towel so that his disciples would see there is nothing more holy than humility. Now, the lesson may have stayed right there. That was a shocking enough lesson in and of itself when the rabbi, position of honor, took off the robe of honor and put on the rag of a servant. That would have been shocking enough, but good old Peter, you've got to love Peter. He's going to give Jesus a chance to make this lesson even more clear, right? Take a look at verses 6 in it through 8. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I'm doing, you don't now understand, but afterward you will understand. Like, like, he's like, Peter, I get it, I get it, just be patient, be patient, buddy, right? And Peter's like, you shall never wash my feet. Uh-uh, right? Not, not me. Now catch what's happening here. Peter is too dignified to let Jesus become that undignified. Peter's trying to protect Jesus. Peter has de defined himself as the protector of Jesus' holiness. I'm the one who's going to protect your name. Because clearly, you don't have any common sense. You don't know what holiness is. I'm not going to let you degrade yourself like this. He opposed Jesus. In the name of defending Jesus and to protect him from becoming undignified. See, it would have shamed Peter to let Jesus take the position of servant. It would have shamed Peter to let Jesus take a position that had less honor than he himself had. It would have devalued Peter to allow Jesus to devalue himself. So Peter took it upon himself to defend Jesus. Listen, um, this action isn't helpful. <laughs> I think you've probably figured that out. It's not honest because he's not really trying to protect Jesus. He's trying to protect himself. And it's not holy. It is pride. See, he was trapped in the self-righteous world of comparative thinking. He... He saw, man, Jesus, you're too good to be associated with that kind of behavior. And this happened to Jesus a lot over the course of his ministry. People were continually trying to, to fix him and correct him. Like, like dude, right? Like, like, don't associate with those people, right? He was always being criticized by the Pharisees for hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. Don't, don't hang out with them. Those aren't your people. Don't put on a towel. That's not your, your role. We need to protect you from these weird impulses that are going to defile your, your dignity and your honor and your holiness. Yeah. People were always trying to protect Jesus from people too unholy to hang out with Jesus trying to protect Jesus from activities that 
we're going to somehow defile his holiness and, and somehow lower his honor because, you know why? They thought they knew what holiness was. They had put themselves in the position of judge. I know what holiness is, and I get to judge who is and who is not holy. And Jesus, you're going the wrong way. That's a shoot, not a ladder, buddy. I'm going to help you out here. That's taking you down the hill. Not the direction you should be going. Not the direction we're all trying to climb. See, we get in trouble when we start thinking that we need to draw lines of exclusion in order to protect God. We are in real trouble when we think God needs our help with holiness. That he just hasn't quite got it right. He's a little too inclusive for us. A little too generous. Can't be that generous. You can't be that inclusive. You're going to make your holiness unholy. So what we do is we start drawing lines. And God's people have done this again throughout history. We see this pattern throughout scripture. We see it throughout the church history. We start drawing lines of exclusion in order to protect God. These are the people that are in. Those are the people that are out. These are the things that represent holiness. Those are the things that represent unholiness. And listen, at the end of the day, it's not really about protecting God. It's about defending our own sense of moral superiority. Because ironically, we're always inside the circle. See, the gospel, God's invitation of grace, is a wide open invitation to a feast. Like Jesus told in one of his parables, it's like a man who, who had a feast and, and he's like, man, there's not enough people here. Go out and invite everyone. Like, beat the bushes. Find people sleeping in the park. Like, like find the people everyone else rejects and get them here. It's a wide open invitation of grace. And if we're honest with ourselves, that makes us really uncomfortable. Because it's way more comfortable if we can draw the line and say, surely he doesn't mean them, right? There are people, I've had this conversation um, numerous times over the last 12 years of leading Trailhead Church, where people will come to me and they'll say, Steve, I didn't, I didn't think we were that kind of church. And I'm like, what do you mean? Well, I didn't think we were the kind of church that had those kind of people, but I have found out we have those kind of people here, people who think this, people who believe this, people who do this, and I think those things are sinful and they shouldn't be here, and if you're allowing them to be here, it means somehow you're sinful and the church is defiled. And my response is pretty much always the same, gently, are you a sinner? Yeah. Are you holy? Yeah? Then what you're saying, indirectly, is that somehow their sin is worse than yours. What you're saying is they should be excluded because they sin in ways you find offensive, while you sin in ways you're comfortable with. Self-righteous holiness always distorts holiness. And it always draws lines of exclusion where God opens doors of invitation. So Jesus gently nudges Peter. And Jesus is gently nudging us too. He's saying, I don't need your help. I'm doing just fine defending my own holiness. I'm doing just fine defending my own dignity. I'm doing just fine keeping a really clear vision on what actual holiness actually is. I don't need your help because your self-righteous holiness is actually unholy. 
your self-righteous holiness will actually undercut the effective work of grace in your life and in the lives of others. He's telling us very clearly not to pull away from people where God's grace draws near. We cannot be more holy than God. See, Jesus is both gently rebuking Peter and inviting him to renewed experience of grace. Look at verses 8 through 10. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus is like, come on, buddy. If I don't wash you, you have no share in me. Simon Peter said to him, well, then why not my feet only? How about my hands and my head? And Jesus is like, calm down, bud. Come on, Peter. The one who is bathed doesn't need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. Peter, you are clean, but not every one of you. See, Peter gets, he's always just a little too excited, right? Wash my head and my hands too. Um, see, he's always trying to get ahead of Jesus, right? That's, I love Peter because I'm so much like him in so many ways. I just try to get ahead of Jesus and tell Jesus where he should be going and what he should be doing and who he should be blessing and what doors he should be opening. And, and, and I just, you know, I just, I know he's Jesus and all, but he might need a little bit of my advice, right? He might just need a little bit of help in knowing how to move forward. I just love that Peter's so open about it, right? I usually try to be a little more subtle, uh, just a little more manipulative. Like he's just right out there, right? And, and Jesus is like, relax, man. Let me do my work. You just receive my blessing. Let me be the one who does the work. You just respond to my love. I washed you already. You are clean. Let me just wash your feet. All right, so the washing of the feet. Um, part of that is about the dirt because they walked around barefoot and they were walking on, on, so if they had sandals, they had sandals, but they're always open-toed shoes sort of deal and their feet are really filthy. And, um, but washing was never just about washing. People in the ancient world didn't uh, go about um, germ warfare, right? They had no concept of germ warfare. Um, their washings were functional and ceremonial. So the washing of the feet wasn't just about getting the dirt off the feet or to cleanse the germs off the feet. It was about this cleansing that said, you're now passing from the defiled world of the marketplace into the holy space of the Passover meal. It was ceremonial, which means that it was symbolic of holiness. It was a holiness ritual in which the washing was the setting apart. Your feet are now being set apart to walk on this ground, right? You are now being set apart to come into this space. So what's the cleanliness about? When Jesus says you are clean, what he's saying is, I've already made you holy. I've already set you apart. He's talking about Peter's justification. Justification is, is the biblical word that simply means that you have been declared holy before God. When you believe in Jesus, when you respond to God's love in trust and with a responding love, you are declared holy, right? Some people have defined justification as just as if I had never sinned, and that's not a bad definition, right? Why? Because your sin was actually put on Christ, right? He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him, right? He died under the weight of our sin so that we could be blessed in His act of obedience, His righteousness. He takes our sin, we get His righteousness. We are justified. We are declared holy. We are set apart. You are washed you are clean. You didn't wash yourself. God washed you. You didn't do anything to earn it or deserve it. It's a gift. It's a free gift of grace, right? Then what's with the washing of the feet? The washing of the feet, I believe, represents sanctification. The process by which God changes us. So we are positionally holy. When God looks at me, he sees the active righteousness of Christ. I'm covered in Jesus, right? Like his act of righteousness. I am holy. And when God looks at me, he sees one who is fully set apart for his love. 
Sanctification is the process by which I become more and more like Jesus in my behavior, in my practice, in my life. So there's a difference between positional holiness and practical holiness. Positional holiness is given to us by grace. Practical holiness is the progressive work of grace that makes us more and more like Jesus. Jesus is like, you're already clean. I just need to wash your feet. Let me help you grow in your holiness. Let me help you walk out your holiness in real life. Let me help you walk out your cleanness, right? You are holy, but I want you to grow in your experience of the holiness I've given you. Justification is positional. Sanctification is progressive. Sanctification is always the outgrowth of justification because God loves us exactly as we are, but He loves us too much to leave us exactly as we are. He will change us. He will free us. So here's the million-dollar question. What does it look like to grow in holiness? It doesn't look like climbing a hill of moral self-improvement. It looks like growing more and more comfortable taking the rags of the servant and walking in the humility of love. Take a look at verses 13, or, uh, 12 through 17. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord. You are right, for so I am. I have that position of honor. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet loved you in humility, you ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. In other words, this is how you grow in what I've given you. This is how you walk out your holiness in practical life. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. What does holiness look like? It looks like service. But listen, it's way more costly than simply occasionally doing an act of service, right? And a CEO who occasionally valets that's not what Jesus is talking about. A pastor who occasionally washes the toilet, that's not what he's talking about. You know, it's not talking about these heroic moments of trying to do acts of service. Um, he, he's talking about a progressive repentance from our pride. A progressive repentance from our, our need to be so important, to be impressive to ourselves and to others, our, our need to fix ourselves so that we can somehow impress ourselves with our own moral achievement and growth, that we might repent of our selfishness and our self-focus. It looks like the rejection and the repentance of our need to judge others based on who they are how they behave, what they believe, what they look like, who they vote for, what weird doctrines they believe, what social issues they hold that are different from our social issues. It looks like rejecting the internal calculus we often use to determine who's worthy of inclusion in us. It means rejecting the artificial lines we draw to try to protect grace who is worthy of our acceptance, who is worthy of our love, who is worthy of our servants. It looks like someone who has stopped trying to evaluate people at all to determine who is worthy. And has decided instead simply to love them like Jesus did. If you want to grow in holiness, which you do, follower of Christ, there is nothing more beautiful, freeing, joyful than the fruit of the Spirit. If you want to grow in holiness, let your eyes be so filled with Jesus that you find yourself being radically loving like He is. That you follow Him in grace 
and with a love that, that doesn't come with preconditions. It allows you to, to lay aside not only your self-improvement projects, but your self-protection projects. I'm telling you, this is the path. Like, like remember, fruit of the Spirit, self-control, which is the one thing we almost always focus on. Like, that's the one thing I want to grow in because that's how I'm going to become. It's a fruit of the Spirit. How do we actually become free of our addictions? How do we actually become free of our self-destructive behaviors? How do we actually become free of our, our judgmental hearts? How do we become free? By becoming consumed with the love of God. By responding to the grace of God. By growing in a love that loves. Even when we find the object of the love unlovely. A love that honors those that we find dishonorable. A love that is so generous that it stoops and serves those that we are tempted to despise. But Steve, I'm sure there are some that are still wrestling with Steve. There are so many people here who are behaving in unholy ways. And what they mean by that is they're doing moral things I find morally wrong. Well, no, it's more than that, Steve. They're actually sinning. Like there are verses in the Bible that tell me they are sinning. I know they are sinning. Yeah, listen, I know. I know. This room is full of sinners. There's not a single saint in this room who is not simultaneously a sinner. And if you're a believer in Jesus, there's not a sinner in this room who is not also a saint. Listen, who was at the table? Who was invited to the Passover feast? Who did Jesus wash their feet? Here's the good news. Both Judas and Peter were there that night. Jesus treated them exactly the same. Jesus didn't make it his mission to fix either one of them. Because love doesn't fix. It invites. Jesus extended the invitation of grace to everyone at that table. Judas and Peter included. He loved them, he served them, and he invited them to respond to his love. And Judas and Peter both responded. They just responded in different ways. One was attracted by that love, humbled by that love, and ultimately set free by that love. And the other rejected that love and was determined to use Jesus instead of love Jesus. Does that mean Jesus failed? That he made a mistake? No. Because love invites, love does not control. L listen, this is, this is something we just need to get our heads around. If love can't do it, nothing can. If love doesn't succeed in changing someone's heart, the law isn't going to do it. If love doesn't succeed in, in awakening someone's Response to grace, rules aren't going to do it, rebukes aren't going to do it. It doesn't mean that love isn't at times challenging. It doesn't mean that love isn't at times saying, you know, here's the clear consequences. Like, like love can be, like every parent knows, love can be challenging and even unpleasant at times because the stakes are so high. But love invites, love does not seek to control. Love does not remove the freedom of others with fear or force. It frees others. And if love doesn't succeed, nothing else will. Law can never succeed where love fails. Fear can never achieve where, where grace falls short. Do you want to walk out the blessing of holiness? Live out the radical call of love. Because if we're going to grow in holiness, we have to grow in humility. All right, let me close this word of prayer. We're going to share communion together. Uh, and we're going to sing, but let me pray for us. Father, we come to you this morning as those who bring the baggage of our broken humanity. Just like all those who have come before us, 
We are restless, 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 restless to fix ourselves and restless to fix others. We are restless to do, to have some sense of control. We yearn not for grace, but for help. Spirit, will you allow us this morning to be comfortable in our helplessness, to simply rest in your love, knowing, Lord, that we are made holy not because we do, we work, we achieve. We're holy because we're loved. And it's only by growing in our experience of love that we grow in our experience of holiness. We help us to repent, Lord, of our need to judge others, to measure others, to try to fix others, and see all of those activities for the manifestation of self-righteousness that they are. And would you help us to grow free from our need to judge ourselves, our need to measure ourselves, our need to fix ourselves, to simply come and be loved, and in being loved, to grow in love, to grow in holiness. Lord, meet us where we are. I pray again this morning, Lord, if there are any here who have not believed in you, any who haven't received the gift of grace, that you would awaken their hearts this morning to the invitation to come, that there are no preconditions other than their need, that, that you're not waiting for them to fix their lives or, or to, to, to stop doing bad things or start doing good things. You're, you're not waiting for them to become worthy. You're inviting them now. Or if there's any here this morning who haven't responded to that invitation of love, Spirit, will you make that invitation overwhelmingly clear to their minds and hearts right now? Will you give them the humility to simply receive your grace, to respond to your love, to be made new in the work of your cross and in the power of your empty tomb? Give them the gift of faith. And allow all of us, Lord, to grow in our responsiveness to you, that we might be filled with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and self-control. For your glory and for our good. And all God's people said, amen.